0: Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to Osh's big anniversary sale celebration May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at Osh.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. Hey QED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious. Mindshift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED.
2: Hey, hey, everyone. You know what time it is. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm
1: Marisa Lagos, politics reporter at KQED. And I'm Guy Marzorati. in again this week for Scott Schaefer. I think he needed another week uh, to his... Long-term investigation in Europe, but we'll be back soon enough. We
2: can't wait to see what he finds on this trip. Uh, Today's guest is Los Angeles State Senator and U.S. Senate candidate Kevin DeLeon, known to friends and foes as KDL. We'll see which one we
1: are. Yes, that's right. We have a lot to talk about, the ongoing Senate campaign, the business in the state legislature. Uh, But first, we have a few things to discuss, starting with the ongoing hearings in the legislature on wildfire and utilities, which you've been following very closely.
2: Yeah, you could say I I drew the short straw. You're welcome, (laughs) Guy. Um, So today um, or on Thursday, there was the third hearing of what is promised to be seven and really the most controversial issue, which is around this question of if utilities cause fires, should they have to pay for it, even if they followed all the state rules and regulations and weren't negligent? four or five hour hearing again today we heard from a representative of the governor's office and CPUC arguing for the proposal that Jerry Brown has made that that's proving to be pretty controversial which would kind of relax some of those rules give courts a little bit more flexibility um, to not make utilities pay and then of course we heard from the other side which includes homeowners and uh, insurance companies and uh, I could go on and on but I mean it, it I think what's interesting is I give this committee a lot of credit. They are delving into an eminently controversial and complicated issue. um, And they're trying, I think, to do it really in a transparent way. But I think the question also is like, I mean, we were covering the wildfires last October. It did take until now to really get everyone to the table.
1: That's right. And the clock is ticking towards the end of the legislative session. I guess my question is, since the topic of the day was this issue of inverse condemnation and possibly changing utility liability, why didn't we hear from pg <laughs>
2: That is a good question. We did hear from them. I want to say on Tuesday and last Wednesday, um, and 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 the chairman Bill Dodd, who's from a lot of the region up north that was devastated last year and again this year. Um, said that he felt like they were kind of too much of a hot potato, that we kind of know where they stand. I mean, they've made no bones about it. They really want this law to change. Um, you know, I, I actually got pg a senior vice president, on the phone this week, which is like maybe the first time that's, that's ever a, happened. That's an accomplishment. Yeah. That's an accomplishment. So, I, I, you know, I guess credit for them that they're actually out there finally talking about this. But, um, you know, it was interesting. I think that there was a lot of skepticism from the committee um, on the governor's proposal, but also on this issue. I mean, we all need the lights to stay on. Right, and what's interesting to me politically is how the utilities are framing this. I mean, their stick is look, if you guys, you know, put us in a situation where we're not financially viable, which in itself is a political statement, uh, how do we meet all these clean energy goals that the governor has helped set? And so, I think that that shows sort of where a lot of the politics is. Also, I did a little dig in today on the Cal Access site, all of our favorite places to go on the web. PG&E spent as much in the second quarter, so between April and June this year, on lobbying as it did in all of 2017. Wow. And they've made about a million dollars in political contributions since January.
1: I also thought politically watching this hearing, where the skepticism came from, the governor's proposal, three lawmakers stood out to me, all who represent areas that were hit really hard by wildfires mm-hmm. last year. Senator H- Hannah Beth Jackson of Santa Barbara. You heard Assemblyman Brian Daly, who's represents Redding, that hit by the car fire very recently. Terrible. And fan. then Assemblyman Jim Wood, who represents part of Santa Rosa, um, you know, right in the middle of those North Bay fires. I think it's a big issue for them to not have to go home to their constituents with the maybe appearance that they're bailing out uh, utility that's involved.
2: Yeah. And you heard, I think, some of the ratepayer advocates and other folks on the other side of this from PG&E make that case. Like, look, this may not be your district strict now but what if it is what are you going to tell your constituents so I mean it's a sticky issue and I think um, yeah it'll be really just I mean we'll be watching it really closely I'm you know fascinated to see what they come up with and if it passes and gets signed. The other talker of the week in Sacramento, maybe a little easier for folks to understand, was over the DMV and those darn lines. The
1: DMV has its moment in the spotlight. We've waited for <laughs> they this. They probably didn't want it. Yeah, we've waited. So this, you know, hearings held at the Capitol this week in response to long lines uh, at the DMV. Part of this had to do with this new federal ID requirement that's requiring folks to go to the DMV and get a new ID. Um, shout out to our colleague Rachel Meyer, She did a post on Facebook, soliciting comment, asking people for their recent experiences at the DMV. And there were a lot of them. There were a lot of them. Looked like it turned into a Yelp page pretty quickly (laughs) for some of the negative responses. Um, And, you know, Republicans have kind of seized on this. They want an audit into the DMV and its management. Uh, Governor Jerry Brown's administration does not. And Democrats yesterday killed the uh, proposal to put forward an audit. Instead, they're going to send about $17 million to hire more staff members, a couple hundred staff members to maybe ease some of the Lines expand weekend hours, um, but I think it is interesting to see. This is an issue all the way to you know to the governor's race. Republicans have jumped on.
2: Yeah, I mean we were talking earlier. You kind of it, like the analogy is if you're out of step with the majority of California on a lot of issues. Yeah, well let's go through. Okay, go after yeah let's yeah. go through
1: the issues. We're talking about John Cox running for governor. He's called gun control a waste of time. That's. Not, majority of Californians disagree. He's anti-abortion. He's defended President Trump's immigration policies. And attack the sanctuary state law. He's we have oppo- the author here yes, with us. He's opposed expansions of health care. He's out of step on all those big issues with Californians. So the strategy is let's talk about the DMV and let's talk about the gas tax. You know, nobody likes going to the DMV. Nobody likes paying to fill up their tank. So the strategy, and it is a long shot, is to focus on issues like that uh, to maybe you know, try to convince Californians that the democratic government is maybe out of step.
2: So two points I'll make. One is that I actually went on the government, the federal government site to check out the information about this real ID law, because I was thinking, can't you just use a passport or another federally issued ID? It is so confusing. Like, no wonder everyone's rushing to the DMV because the feds aren't making it any easier to figure out what's needed and when it's needed. And that some of the deadlines they say are have already happened or are, were in the past. I mean, it's it's crazy. Um, on the issue of the The audit. I think this is one where, like, I kind of get both sides. I mean, it's a bad look for Dems to kill this, right? On the other hand, what they're saying is that audits can take like eight, 12 plus months. This is an issue that needs to be dealt with right now. You could say, well, maybe let the audit go forward and then we'll also deal with it right now. That probably would have been a better political look. Clearly you know, the governor's administration who oversees the DMV wasn't going for that. Um, But I think that gets to something, you know, that most people may not think about, which is like audits in themselves are political, right? And so like... I, you know, I think- Right.
1: And I th- but I think that's the larger thing here. And you saw the SACB has a report out uh, this evening about there being a you know special DMV office for state and pl- for state legislators and former legislators to use. Uh, I think a lot of this is just the optics because we heard from State Senator Ben Allen, you know, who was one of the Democrats who didn't want to go forward with the audit, say, look, I'm still going to put the administration's feet to the fire and maybe, you know, follow up with them constantly to see if progress is being made. We heard similar things from Senator Jim Bell. But optically, you're right. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, we'll see. I don't think Dems are going to like lose their majority over this or anything. All right. We're going to take a little break here. After that, we will be joined by the Democrat challenging Dianne Feinstein for Senate, the former leader of the state Senate, Kevin DeLeon. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio.
1: That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Guy Roddy here with Marisa Lagos and our guest this week, state senator and U.S. Senate candidate Kevin DeLeon.
2: KDL, welcome to the breakdown.
3: Marisa, Guy, thank you very much for the invitation. <laughs> senator, uh, i appreciate KDL is perfectly fine.
2: <laughs> so, We want to talk about your really incredible personal story and and a lot of other stuff, but I'm just curious, as someone who's been in SAC for a while, what's your read on the DMV thing? Like, I know you're not, you weren't on the committee, you weren't part of that. I mean, do you think it's bad optics or do you get it?
3: Well, listen, optics aside, I think the Democrats did the right thing because I I do believe Senators Jim Bell, as well as Ben Allen, who two uh, excellent senators that they're going to hold the administration's feet to the fire. There's no question about it. Uh, but when the governor uh, signals that he has certain internal reforms that he's going to implement and execute immediately uh, to deal with the issue of the DMB and the long uh, lines, it's 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 a question of not wasting taxpayer dollars mm-hmm. because the audits themselves, as you mentioned, uh, are highly political, uh, expecting a certain outcome, I- implement the internal uh, uh, reforms, and then if they don't work out, then do the audit. I
2: mean, because they take months, too. They it's not months. like that's going to help they overnight. They take a
3: long time. It costs taxpayer Uh, money, taxpayers, a lot of money. And uh, trust me, uh, my colleagues in the Senate, as well as my colleagues in assembly, are going to hold this administration's feet to the fire. No doubt about it.
1: And this secret DMV officer line still (laughs) long there as well? Well,
3: you guys, you should show me where it's at because I've never been there. (laughs) Really? Uh, There's a picture
2: in the SAC-B. You can figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) Let us know. Maybe we can come with you. (laughs) All right. Well, let's back up. Um, As I mentioned, you have a pretty incredible story. Um, Grew up in Barrio Logan in San Diego, my home Town. Um, Oh, I didn't know you're from San Diego. Claremont and Pacific Beach. Claremont
3: High School, Mission Uh, Bay High. Oh
2: yeah, Claremont High.
3: Okay, San Diego High.
2: Oh, nice. Yeah, Yeah. I wanted to go to Mission Bay, but my parents thought it was too big. You wanted to be a buccaneer. Yeah, but I enjoyed Claremont. It was fun. Um, But your mom was a house cleaner, and you know, you. I know that. You went along with her sometimes. Mm-hmm. You were riding the bus. Just tell us a little bit about like how that upbringing kind of shaped your life.
3: Well, I grew up uh, in several neighborhoods. Uh, but in the early years of my life in a neighborhood neighborhood called Logan Heights in San Diego, which is one of the poorest, if not the poorest neighborhood in all of San Diego Not far County, from the border. Not far from the border. Uh, my mother was a housekeeper. She spent the vast majority of her life uh cleaning other people's homes in a very wealthy enclave uh, in San Diego in La Jolla mm-hmm. um, a, a beautiful community that has a, a that has ocean panoramic views of the Pacific Ocean very similar to Pacific Heights here in San Francisco and it was there that I learned the value of hard work and I learned uh, about my mother's work ethic a single mother uh uh, immigrant uh, with a third-grade education. Uh, she was the one who uh, put the clothes on my back, put the food on the table, and paid the rent uh, to put the roof over my head. So that was very... Uh, uh, inf- my decision-making as an elected official is uh, informed uh, by my growing up. There's no question about it. Yeah. Uh, that's had a huge impact on the decision-making that I make in terms of policies that hopefully improve the human condition for all Californians regardless of who they are and where they come from. But that had a huge impact on me.
1: And then when did politics come in? I mean, do you have an early memory of, of when you were inspired to get into public service or anything like that?
3: Well, you know, politics, I think maybe uh, in high school, uh, maybe my junior, senior year, but never uh, electoral politics. Um, I started getting politicized with with the intervention, the uh, proxy wars in Central America. Uh, and, you know, my eyes started starting to... Uh, open up with regards to inequities in our society. But electoral politics never creeped up into my mind until perhaps um, in my mid-20s. Oh, wow. you know, um, uh, This was Proposition 187. Mm-hmm. Um, we all know what the end result was of Prop 187. Unfortunately, it's happening at a national level now. But uh, I was never a staffer uh, to a politician. I was never a, a Senate fellow A congressional aide, was never um, involved in electoral politics. And um, I ran for the very first time um, against, uh, I was an underdog. I ran against the granddaughter of a legendary labor icon with his own own U.S. postal stamp, uh, uh, Christine Chavez, the granddaughter of Cesar Chavez. And she's a terrific person, by the way. And um, uh, I, you know, a lot of folks didn't think I was going to win. And I ended up winning. You did.
2: We're going to get to a similar race you're in now, which, um, uh, well, you're in the I know you have a daughter, um, you she's involved in politics now. I'm just wondering, um, and, and I know you've been really involved in raising her and part of her life. Like, are you learning anything from her around this issue and, and around politics?
3: Well, you know, she's a, a millennial, uh, she uh, graduated here in the Bay Area uh, over in Moraga. Uh, she's mm-hmm. a gal at St. Mary's College. And she, she went to high school here in, in South Bay, in San Jose. She uh, graduated from Notre Dame High School. Yeah, her school.
2: mom's in politics too, Her right? mom's
3: in politics. Uh, her mom is the vice mayor of the city of San Jose, uh, Magdalena Carrasco.
2: So it's in her blood at this point.
3: <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing about it is her mom never got involved in electoral politics uh, until her mid-40s had never really even signaled an interest in being involved in electoral politics until her mid-40s, which is an incredible story in itself. Uh, but my daughter um, is very politically astute. Um, she has, I think, very strong values. I don't know if she actually wants to be involved in electoral politics. She, I wouldn't blame her if she didn't. She has signal on various occasions. <laughs> you know, thanks, but no thanks. But she is very politically astute, and she has uh, solid values.
2: Nice. So... Um, we mentioned earlier, you know, that you've had a knack for taking on a lot of big legislative pushes, gun control, the environment. And I think you kind of alluded to this in terms of your, your upbringing. But like what it, it, it seems like everything you've tackled in some ways you've had a personal experience with. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's your process when you like pick these fights? Because they're big, really complicated policy issues.
3: I think overall to, to really break it down, to simplify it, it's just about equity and opportunity. It's that simple. California is the fifth largest economy on planet Earth, Uh, yet uh, this economy hasn't worked for everybody. And there's so many Californians that are being left behind today. Uh, We see this in San Francisco. I used to live in San Francisco, uh, right across the street from uh, the Panhandle. Uh, My church was St. Ignatius. Mm -hmm. uh, That was my parish up on the hill. And we we see um, the inequities actually getting uh, bigger and bigger in California. And ultimately, it's about opportunity, whether it's the air that we breathe, whether it's the water we drink, uh, whether it's economic growth and jobs that are being created in the clean energy space and making sure that that working-class families, uh, low-income families, have access to these high-wage-paying jobs, whether it's the issue of, of, of gun safety, ammunition control, uh, regulation. I mean, you
2: had a personal...
3: Yes, situation, right? I had a I mean, personal in situation your neighborhood. in my neighborhood when I just was elected uh, to the state assembly. There was a young girl by the name of uh, Churupa Wang's Wistory, a nine-year-old a Thai girl, and she was shot in the head. And they uh, took her off life support okay. maybe two weeks afterwards. And that's how I got into the regulation of ammunition because I found out that in California until then, uh, or up to now, I should say, Uh, No one knew who sold ammunition. No one knew who purchased it. So if you called the district attorney, say, in San Francisco or the DA in Alameda County or, say, down in uh, Santa Clara County, and you asked them, hey, who sells ammunition? Who buys ammunition? They couldn't even give you an answer because they don't know. Those statistics are not uh, kept. But more importantly, for me, the thesis behind my measures, in this case, the ammunition, is that ammunition is the fuel. It's the oxygen. Uh, without ammunition, a handgun, a long gun, a shotgun, a semi-automatic weapon, the functionality ceases to exist. And that's why we need to regulate ammunition. We do gasoline. Why not ammunition?
1: I mean, one of the other big pushes you've had is moving California towards this clean energy future. Um, You also come from a union background. You're working with the teachers' uh, union. I'm wondering how you view those two things as you've kind of pushed the state towards a clean energy future. Um, You know, how do you bring organized labor along because part of a new energy future is a new workforce and and a new economy?
3: That's a really good question. And I believe that... um, uh by moving California towards a decarbonized grid, and I was successful in 2015 by uh, creating a law that would make California uh, generate half of its electricity from renewable sources. That means a PGE, a Southern California Edison, um, a Southern California uh, uh, Senior Gas and Electric, Semper Energy, a uh, 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 upstart disruptor like a CCA or a municipally-owned utility like SMUD or LADWP, by law, they have to generate half their electricity from renewable sources. There are four goals in mind. Number one, reduce our harmful carbon dioxide, greenhouse gas emissions. Two, reduce harmful criteria pollutants, which is that ugly smog that we see. Three, provide a tax break to ratepayers, and that's manifested by the bill that they pay on a monthly basis. Mm -hmm. And four, economic growth, jobs, high-wage paying jobs, creating... Uh, a new economy of tomorrow and making sure that working families have access to these types of jobs energy efficiency for example but that's been
2: tough I mean I know you have uh, a bill this year to mm-hmm. move us to 100%, 100% renewables 100% and um, IBW who works for a lot of the um, big utilities you talked about I mean they've been one of the bigger opponents but I've heard they might be coming off of well, that well I
3: think that we've had really constructive uh, dialogue uh, that's been honest that's been transparent with IDB- IBW um, I think at the end of the day, they will be coming on board uh, in full support. Um, I understand. Do they
2: want to make sure that the new jobs are well, labor?
3: I think, or union jobs. I can only I can understand a perspective because, yeah. for example, if you have a workforce of men and women uh, who work for PG&E, you don't want to find them all of a sudden unemployed or underemployed, and now you created another problem right. in California. You've added to the numbers of the unemployed. You don't want to do that. You want to reduce our carbon footprint and grow the economy and not displace folks from their jobs. Yeah. So their, their concerns are, are, are legit, without a doubt.
2: Great. I'm going to remind everyone we're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Guy Marzarati. And our guest this week is State Senator Kevin DeLeon, who's running for U.S. Senate. And we should mention we invited his opponent in the race, Senator Dianne Feinstein, to come on our show. And we're hoping that happens sometime in the next couple of months. Um, but let's talk about the Senate race, because that's <laughs> what you're doing a lot of the time now. Um, I mean... I guess I'm assuming the question you get a lot is like, why take on Dianne Feinstein? She has been uh, there for 25 years. Um, and, in you know, I think beyond the political questions, seems very popular with a lot of Democrats in California. You know,
3: it's really interesting because I get that question a lot less now. I think in the beginning hmm. when I announced my candidacy for the U.S. Senate, um, there was a lot of um, sort of maybe the attitude is know your place uh who oh, do you think you are yeah um but i'm getting that less and less now hmm. um uh, two major accomplishments one is we navigated a large field of 32 candidates if you opened up your ballot it looked like the white pages there were so many names there and to actually navigate uh, 32 candidates to get into the And top you've never two. run statewide before. Never run statewide. That was a huge accomplishment. Uh, and two is just recently uh, securing the uh, endorsement from the California Democratic Party. We were both present. We both campaigned uh, hard for the endorsement. And to get 65% of the uh, delegates, their support uh, versus 7%, I think is a very strong signal that Democrats in California want a new voice, a voice of change. They want someone that's going to be on the front lines, not someone who's going to be on the sidelines and someone who's going to ask for patience uh, with this president with the hope that perhaps in the future he could be a good president.
1: Well, I mean, just looking at the primary numbers, uh, Senator Feinstein, of course, won the primary. She won among Democrats. You have a lot of ground to make up in the next couple months. I'm wondering, what's your pitch to California Republicans?
3: Well, I can tell you this: I've worked very closely with uh, California Republicans in the state legislature. I had to secure necessary votes to uh, extend the Global Warming Solutions Act, which required a two-thirds vote. Uh, at the same time, to remove uh, to move forward SB one, our uh, uh, infrastructure uh, revenue enhancement to to actually uh, rebuild our roads, our bridges, uh, our highways, our local highways. But
2: some of the Republicans in that are get you know have almost had their Republican cards taken away. I mean, you know, these are all things, but you are running squarely to the left of Dianne Feinstein. Not
3: necessarily. No? I think I'm running, it's not about moving more to the left or moving more to the right. It's about moving forward with common sense policies. And I can't mention names, but I can tell you, this: there's quite a few Republican senators and Republican assembly members who actually voted for me with their Texas. I saw them I, I said, thank you.
2: <laughs> so, one of the, your themes is incumbency is only valib- valuable if you use it. Um, and I'm just curious, I mean, we were talking about this before like given and you're well aware of dynamics when you're in the minority or majority I mean w- how would you be handling, say, the nomination of Supreme Court uh, nominee Brett Kavanaugh differently than she is well, right now? Well,
3: uh, number one, it's a very good question. Number one, I'd make it very clear uh, publicly that I would vote no uh, uh, to date. The Doesn't that senator, take out
2: some of your leverage in terms of asking for more information? Not
3: at all whatsoever, because I think we already know enough about Brett Kavanaugh. And uh, number two, I would never have opened a door. Uh, for Brent Kavanaugh to actually be a U.S. Supreme Court uh, nominee before the U.S. Senate. And what I mean by that is back in 2006, our senior senator from California voted to allow him to have a vote on the U.S. Senate floor. This is when the minority leader, Harry Reid, Chuck Schumer, uh, Dick Durbin, uh, Barbara Boxer, Hillary Clinton all voted no. Mm. For
1: a lower
2: level appointment. Appointment.
3: Uh, for lower-level appointment, which was the D.C. Court of Appeals. However, underscore that many folks said, do not vote, because if you do on this gentleman, he will be a U.S. Supreme Court nominee in the future, uh, because he's too extreme. Mm-hmm. He's too ideologically rigid. Uh, this is a man who poses the biggest threat to the United States, to women's right to choose, workers' rights, voting rights, civil rights. So, number one, I would never have voted. To allow him to have that vote. Never would have opened a door to Brent Kavanaugh. Two, I'd make my vote known openly and publicly today. I'm a no vote. Uh, today, she has not signaled whether she's a yes or a no.
1: I mean, you've also run on a lot of the legislative accomplishments that you've had during your time in the legislature. And I think when we look at Governor Brown's legacy. A lot of the things, a lot of the big accomplishments that he was able to sign uh, happened because you were able to get them through the Senate. Whether it's cap and trade, the road repair bill, you know, emission standards. So, backtrack to April 10th. He endorses Senator Feinstein, mm-hmm. and I know they have a personal relationship. But well, after all is the work, yeah. after all the work you all had done together, what was your reaction to that?
3: Well, you know, a couple things. One is, you know, you're right. We we've had a, a an amazing. Uh, Uh, journey together. Uh, Quite frankly, many of our accomplishments that we both have accomplished would not have been possible uh, without working closely together. Um, I do understand politically that they're very close. I do understand that uh, the governor's father, Jerry Brown, uh, first appointed uh, uh, Diane Feinstein uh, to a commission, or I'm not quite sure. Kind of There's some family there. connection yeah. there. Some 15 years ago, yeah. I'm not <laughs> quite sure, and and I know that Diane Feinstein did marry uh, Jerry Brown, so I understand that it's it's in the blood, uh, Family's family, and I get it. I understand it. Um, I uh, listen. Being the youngest child of a single immigrant mother with a third grade education, I'm not supposed to be here in the studio with you. Uh, with this interview. Um, I didn't come from the right side of the tracks, uh, the right neighborhood, didn't have the right last name or the pedigree, uh, a father uh, who was governor, and so forth. It is what it is. But this is what makes California such a magical place that, again, the youngest child of a single immigrant mother could actually be the leader of the California State Senate, the first person of color in more than 133 years, more than a century, and could actually make into the top two uh, to potentially be the next U.S. Senator, first Latino in the history of the state of California, representing the greatest state in the nation, which is California. This is what makes California such a magical place.
2: Are you, um, you mentioned Proposition 187, which is, was, of course, this. Um very draconian measure in the 90s to basically strip all undocumented immigrants of any public services. We're talking hospitals, schools, courts. Never let it go into effect. It really created a backlash in California that I think helped propel probably your political rise and a lot of other folks we see in in the state legislature and elsewhere. Um, but we've also seen over and over these promises that Latinos are going to come out and that it's going. You know, we're going to be this big part of the electorate, and they haven't. Totally materialized, except for in cases like that, where there's this big threat. So I guess like kind of two part question, like what needs to happen to get Latinos to the polls and the numbers that folks like you really would like to see to help yourself? And then also, you know, is it is this the national 187 moment? Like, is that one area of hope for you? Well,
3: one is I do think in this June 5th primary, Latinos did overperform in comparison to other primaries that are non-presidential years. I think the numbers uh, clearly prove that. Uh, two is with regards to is this the nation's Prop 187? Uh, what happens here in California uh, always impacts the rest of the, nation. the good, the bad, as well as the ugly. And I've, I've told my Republican colleagues, uh, friends before, don't go down that road. It, it's a pyrrhic victory. It's a short-term victory. In the long run, it turns out very bad mm-hmm. for the Republicans. And uh, it's clear that the 187, this is the 187 moment for the country with this president, with Jeff Sessions, with Steve Miller. It's sad that they're part apart the seams of this nation, but uh, I think once again, we will, uh, we will rise as a nation and we will come together as a nation and we'll do the right thing, which is respecting everybody regardless of who they are and where they come from.
2: Well, on that hopeful note, we're going to have to say goodbye. Thank you for coming Already? in. Thanks so
3: much. Can, we go, can we go another hour? <laughs> yeah. We have we more questions. We can turn the mics off and keep going. <laughs> about uh, that? Okay.
1: It was a pleasure. Uh,
2: <laughs> thank you so much for coming in. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown, which is a production of KQED Public Radio.
1: You can check us out anytime. Find us on Apple Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcasts. Make sure to leave us a rating if you like what you heard.
2: And not if you don't, right? Our engineer Steele Muller and Ethan Thorson directed the show this week. Thanks, Nina.
1: And Katie Orr is our Sacramento reporter. Make sure to check out her new series, The Long Run, about women getting into politics.
2: Ethan Lindsay is our managing editor. Holly Kernans, our vice president of news, our station dog. I'm just kidding. We don't have one. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at M Lagos.
1: God, we don't have a station dog. I'm (laughs) Guy Marzorati. I'm I'm filling in for Scott Schaefer. You can follow me at at Guy Marzorati.
2: That is a wrap for this week's Political